Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. Have you ever had an incident in theatre, or perhaps preoperatively or postoperatively, something that someone else could learn from? Maybe it was an interesting presentation of anaphylaxis, or perhaps an equipment issue. If these were to happen, once you've managed the event, what are your next steps? I'm hoping in there that you've heard of WebAirs, which is an online anaesthesia incident reporting system and something that the ASA has been supporting since it was first developed in 2009. In this episode, I chat with Professor Martin Culwick, who is the medical director of WebAirs and integral to its development and ongoing maintenance. Of course, I'll put a link to WebAirs in the show notes, so if you're not familiar with it, you can check it out for yourself. At the end of this episode, I'll also give you an update and some ideas for how you might be able to get involved if you're keen to contribute to anaesthesia incident reporting in Australia. All right, let's get into it. Before I ask you about WebEx, I want to find out a little bit more. You are a professor in information technology. Well, I have been an adjunct professor at the Queensland University of Technology. And so you've always had this interest in information technology as well as your interest in anaesthesia. Yeah, even as a medical student. So what are some of the things that led you into that area and what did you do in that area? Well, one of my hobbies as a teenager, actually even preteen, was electronics. And then when I went to university, I'd considered doing electrical engineering, but I was also doing very well in biology at school. So we kind of had an interview with the teacher and I said, I had said to him that I wasn't sure whether to be a doctor or go into electrical engineering. And he said, well, if you go into electrical engineering, it's very hard to get into medicine after you've got one degree as it used to be in those days. Uh, now it's all completely different. They prefer it now. Uh, but if you go into medicine and you don't like it, you can always go and do electrical engineering. When I was at university, uh, there was an opportunity to do an elective as a medical student, and I I did it in the computer department. So you went through medicine and then went into anaesthesia, and then did you go back and pick up electrical engineering or electronics? Uh, So I went, went through and completed my training, and then in my first staff job, and it was a combined anaesthesia and intensive care job, the um, director of intensive care had a computer but couldn't program it. In those days, statistical programs and things like that were very expensive. And uh, so I'd already done some assembler programming and some Fortran programming. I programmed him a little statistical package of different things that he wanted. And then when he was publishing, of course, he um, got it cross-checked by the university, you see, which he could do. But he wanted to do the initial stuff on his own computer. And so then he suggested that I do a course at QUT, which was then called Queensland Institute of Technology. It became a university later. Wow. In computer science? Computer science, yeah. Fantastic. So computers and anesthesia have really gone side by side throughout your career. Yes. It's the big thing now, isn't it, that a lot of health services are having chief information officers and we're all looking at how to collect data. You are well ahead of your time. (laughs) <laughs> but look, let's move on to WebAirs. So for people who haven't heard about WebAirs, how would you describe what it is? Well, it's a web-based anaesthetic instant reporting system. 
what we did was we looked at all of the instant reporting systems and we found that the um, ones that are generally used in hospitals don't have any codification of the data for anesthetic purposes. So they're mainly revolving around the hospital system. There's the narrative there, but of course, uh, that's somewhat limited if you can't ask further questions, as it were. Now, knowing that we can't go back to the person who submitted the report because it's an anonymous system, we wanted to collect as much information about the incident as possible from the outset. So you've still got the narrative, but instead of going through the various questions that you'd be asked in the hospital system, uh, after you put the description of it in, you then code as to what type of incident it was, and it could be multiple ones. So you could have had, say, for instance, a laryngeal spasm, and then they might have regurgitated and aspirated, and you can code those. So we have slightly more events, if you like, per report than we do reports sort of thing. So it's only probably about 10% more, but nevertheless, there's slightly more. Then we also collect information on the demographics of the, the person, uh, including in the ASA grade, which the hospital systems don't collect. But uh, when we were evaluating this system, we realized that buying a commercial system wasn't going to work. And there was two reasons for that. Uh, one was it didn't really collect the information we wanted. And the second was they wanted to charge either per person who might be eligible to come into it, or an annual fee that was actually quite high. So in 2008, when we were evaluating it, they wanted to charge about three to $500,000 a year. So it's a reporting system. It's anesthesia-specific, so people can enter in anesthesia-specific data yeah. that captures that. Is it only anaesthetists that are able to access it? Uh, yes, except for we have had a small number of departments who've asked if their quality assurance nurse, who is anaesthetic specific, can act to assist the director of the department and just enter stuff and do things like that. So we do have a small number of nurses who are immediately supporting the director, but the director is both an anaesthetist and either an ASA member or a college uh, fellow or New Zealand Society member. But it's really they're acting as a surrogate, as an assistant for somebody else. But say the recovery nurses can't just enter it, although uh, we might get more reports if they did. <laughs> Could, say, a GP anaesthetist get access to WebEs? If they're a member of the ASA is the situation there. And uh, so how we developed our data set was we uh, looked with the English NHS, who had an incident reporting system they'd developed themselves. The Americans, they were developing a uh, system exactly like ours but they were at the same stage. In fact, they weren't nearly quite as advanced, but they had mentioned it on their website. So I contacted them, Dr. Richard Dutton. And then what we did was then collaborated on a data set and we released ours first. And then the agreement was that we would both share it. And we, as you know, subsequently have shared it with the Canadian Society. It sounds like there's quite a lot of work that goes into building that data set or that went into building it initially? Yes, I built it using a Microsoft platform, and that was because most of the servers are Microsoft servers. But um, it's not as much work if you actually enjoy doing it as well. That's true. And because I, I know with being obviously involved with ANSADAC in my role as ASA president, there was a slight change to the data set with COVID as we started collecting more yes. 
COVID-related parameters. So you went back in and reprogrammed the data set. Is that right? Yes. What I did was I added on an initial section to do with COVID. So the first page collects not only the narrative like the other one, so part of it's almost a replica of the existing one, but it collects various factors that are associated with COVID that we thought might be important. And you just put checkboxes in that you can click. And there's a demo for that uh, on the website as well that you can look at. Once you've completed that first page, it takes you to the second page of the existing program. The other big thing that I know is a big consideration with WebEars is confidentiality. Yeah. So what do we have in place for protecting patient confidentiality and reporter confidentiality too? Yeah. So when we were setting it up, we sought um, advice from the ethics department, initially at the Royal Brisbane and also in New Zealand at Auckland. And uh, they said that if you um, wanted to record any details of the patient name or hospital number or anything like that, that you would have to get the patient's permission. Not only that, they would have to be not under the influence of any drugs. And the um, problem with that is that if you had an incident during the uh, case, chances are when you went to see them post-op, they'd have analgesia on board and therefore they would be under the influence of a drug that might affect you know, their ability to give consent. So they suggested getting consent from everybody before they came in. And we said, oh, that's good because the hospital gets consent for that for quality assurance purposes. And uh, so they said, no, 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 uh, that's for the quality assurance within the hospital. Ah, interesting. But luckily we had a good relationship with the ethics committee. So they said, what you can do, though, is if you have a right to that information in the first place, and you would do if you were obviously um, giving them an anaesthetic, then you can access the chart to de-identify it. De-identified information is not subject to the same ethics requirements as identified information. So we were faced with either getting consent from every patient in case they had an incident before they went in really consent and explain what incidents could occur and all this sort of stuff. That's a lot of consents that won't be required. <laughs> not in the anaesthetic room, but before they're admitted to hospital, preferably in the anaesthetic clinic, and not a tick box that everybody does. And uh, so that just got too hard. Uh, and also we suspected from other papers worldwide that the number of anaesthetic incidents that would be reported is likely to be one or two per thousand cases. Now, it's known that incidents occur in one to two percent of cases, but only one in 10 of those gets reported. And you see, if you think about it, if you had a slightly difficult intubation, but you got the tube in with a bougie, would you report that? Most people wouldn't. No. No, you would have had at least to have failed with one of your arms of the vortex and failed with that, and maybe also failed with a laryngeal mask and then finally got in with the bougie. That's the sort of things that get reported. But simply changing to an LMA and then completing the case with that instead, unless the person particularly wants to discuss it at their m and meeting, that would fall by the wayside. There could be something that was interesting in that. But if it was a, just a routine thing like that, they're probably never going to get reported, even though they would be very useful in some respects to have in the database. There would, of course, be a lot more to analyse then. <laughs> so patient confidentiality is protected. By virtue of two ways, de-identification is one. And secondly, we've applied for and got qualified privilege in uh, Australia and separately in New Zealand. And the other thing too is that 
the lead time in getting approval for that's about 18 months and ours is up in 2023. Last time we needed the ASA and the college president to meet with the health minister, who was Greg Hunt, and make a personal plea to get it over the bar, as it were, because they're very reluctant to hand that out now. Did you know? I did not know that, but I remember there was quite some delay with New Zealand getting it most recently. So I can imagine that perhaps there might be that same delay into Australia as well. So what, what they're saying is that there should be transparency. But what we wouldn't want is somebody to say, okay, we want to have a copy of your database. And they might be able to ask for that. I mean, uh, the qualified privilege we have is, I think they call it contemporaneous. In other words, it lasts forever for the period that you had it. And that's why we stopped the reports coming in from New Zealand, because otherwise it would taint the database because we wouldn't know whether a report came from New Zealand or not. And we might have reports in there that weren't protected. And then that gives a legal chink in the armor. So as soon as that, that expired, we stopped reports coming in and we just had a little message up there to say, you know, we apologize, but reports being suspended for the time being and why. So that means that we're going to have to face up to a very difficult problem in 2023 if they don't renew it. And we do know that other colleges have not had their qualified privilege renewed for their trainee programs and things like that. Well, that's definitely a space to watch. Hopefully, we can continue to get qualified privilege and still continue to encourage people to report. Yeah. It's still, even if we lose qualified privilege, that is from that point onwards, as you said, with that contemporaneous nature. It doesn't mean that reports that have been reported in the past are now going to be open for public dissemination. Correct. Is they're protected forever. Now, when we take the data and analyse it and print it in anaesthesia and intensive care, It's no longer protected, but we never asked for that in the first place. And I'll come back to the publications that arise from WebAirs, but if people want to get involved, how do they go about doing that? Basically, contact the ASA, who will forward it to Amsterdam. And if people want to register as a user, say you're a day-to-day working anaesthetist and you think this would be good to be able to log any incidents that arise, how do they go about establishing that? They can do that online. So they can go to the website, click on, you know, I want to register. Then they uh, fill in some details. So your first name and your surname, your email address, and then whether you're a member of ASA, uh, ANSCA or New Zealand Society or other, because we might, for instance, from time to time, allow guests such as people who might be involved in the American system or Canadian system might allow them access from time to time at a very low level of an overview level. And do you need to be part of a public hospital department in order to register as a user? Or can anybody, if you're in private public trainees, can they register as well? Yes, yes, they can. So open to anybody who's an ASA member registered with ANSCA either as a fellow or a trainee or an NZSA member. Yeah, and even if you were in a public hospital, if you wanted to do your own audit, you could register as an individual and maybe record some things that you might not necessarily feel you wanted discussed at the M&M meeting, but still do an audit for you know six months or something, you could do that. But the other thing you can do, even as a departmental men- member, if you didn't want to do an audit of your own, is when you're entering the incident, one of the first questions to ask you is, do you want this to be discussed at M&M, included in your local results, which means that it'll appear for that hospital 
but it won't be discussed at M and M. Uh, or do you want it to be completely anonymous, which is very much the same as the private individual type of situation? Except for the only difference there is the private individual can go back and look at their own results because they're effectively the same as a site. And you might yep. wonder how we can connect the incident to a hospital department, and that's by a encrypted token. So the site, when they log on to review the incident, sends an encrypted token to WebAirs, who then returns all the incidents with that encrypted token. Ah, great. So if you're, say, part of a department, you have an option when you're logging in the case to say, yes, this is part of a department and we would like to come back and review it at our own hospital M&M. Or you could just say you don't want to review it at your own hospital M&M. And then if you've got someone in your department who's involved with safety and quality, they'll have access to be able to pull all the records or incidents relevant to your department or that occurred in your hospital over a period of time and perhaps present them at an M&M meeting that's specific to your hospital. That leads me on to my next question. So people have entered in their cases. Then what happens with this information? How can people access it, learn from it? Yes, so the local department, as we mentioned, can extract their own and review them. But we also provide information in the magazines of the parent organisations. They each have a quarterly magazine that's published, and we publish an article in the bulletin. And then we publish a different article in the ASA and New Zealand Society. But because there isn't a crossover between ASA and New Zealand Society membership to any degree, there is a small crossover, but there isn't a big crossover. The article for the ASA and the New Zealand Society is the same because it's actually quite a lot of work to keep up with eight articles a year. And if it was just the eight articles a year, it wouldn't be too bad. But we're also doing analyses um, and publishing articles in anesthesia and intensive care as well. And we also have presenters who are at each of the annual scientific meetings, and that's three a year. So they have to supply the presenters with information from the database that they can present, and there can be up to three at each meeting. So there's another nine there. So there's a lot of um, work involved in getting it out there, but basically they are the modes, magazine articles, presentations at annual scientific conferences and publications in peer-reviewed journals. I did get your presentation at the recent NSC. Thank you very much. A very slick presentation. It was very interesting. Thank you. And there's also anaesthetic alerts, aren't there? Oh, yes. Uh, and they're recent. And we're attempting actually to get CPD points for reading through those, much the same as you would do for any other educational activity. Uh, I think actually it's already would be acceptable for the educational section of it, but we're trying to get them for the practice evaluation part. I think we've thought about having some M&M meetings that the ASA was going to host. I remember vaguely having this idea of having a few cases selected out of the database that could be presented and then having a live discussion and having someone who's experienced and a moderator. So we could use the... Um existing alerts that we have and select cases from those and put them up. Not only that, in parallel, it would uh, have the effect of getting them ready to be released because we've got a whole lot of alerts that are not released that we need to have reviewed by the committee. And if we reviewed them live at M&M meetings regularly, that would be brilliant because uh, we could get feedback and the valid feedback we could put in and then we could release them online. 
Oh, Martin, let's do it. Perfect. I know in Victoria, ASA used to have a regular M&M meeting about three times a year, always really well attended because everyone loves M&M. It would be useful to have one every month, actually. The Americans do that, but they publish it in um, their anesthesia monitor. Do you think there's an issue with confidentiality or any other issues? What we've done for actual conferences where we've used cases, uh, usually in workshops, uh, what we have done is we've taken a combination of cases. So we're not kind of making it up, but we're also somewhat de-identifying it. Maybe we might alter the age if that was immaterial. If it wasn't important, we could make them female instead of male and that, all this sort of thing. That uh, And I think that's important because... Uh, if you suddenly saw your exact case coming up before you. Let's keep working on this because I think that would be really something that we could do that would be really useful. Yeah, that all sounds uh, excellent. The other thing too is arranged in a hierarchical structure and that's got quite a lot of advantages for a data extraction point of view and how businesses would tend to run some of their data. It's a bit like a classification system you know, that we have in medicine. Uh, that you have a hierarchy of different things, like we split ourselves into various organ systems to discuss. We don't start at the bottom and look at a red blood corpuscle and then get sidetracked and say, this carries oxygen, therefore we've got to look at the oxidation of tissues sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? We do it the other way around. We come down to that level from above. So we have a, a circulation system and that consists of blood, which has got corpuscles in. They take the oxygen. You know, did see what I follow? There's a hierarchical down. And then there's a bottom up. Now, traditionally, if they're doing qualitative data, they've traditionally looked of what I would call a bottom up approach. You get the narrative, you look some words, uh, triggers, and then see if you can find some more. That's very valid, but it's not the only way of doing it. But most of the analyses up to now have been a bit like that. And even big, big data is a bit like that. It's looking for words to make associations. And you can miss entire chunks of data by doing that sort of big data analysis. But ours is already arranged hierarchically, so we can look down. Not only that, we can combine it with a narrative search. So say if we're looking for aspiration, and we've done this, you get all of those that are coded as being aspiration. Mm. Then you do a word search and see if you get any extra ones. And then some of the extra ones have got to be aspiration of CSF and stuff like that. But a small number of them, mostly people have coded them correctly, but you might have another handful where they've, called it something else. They've already just said they got a, a pneumonia post-op or something, and, and it actually is obviously aspiration. And uh, they might have mentioned aspiration in the um, in the text, but not coded it in the drop-down. Yeah. And so um, so you pull those in, and then, then you're away, you know, a couple of hundred cases that all would appear to have aspirated, and then see what the preliminary things, the risk factors, whether they took any precautions. So those ones you were describing, can you go back and change the code? If someone's missed putting aspiration in the coding and then it was clear from reading the text that this was a case of aspiration, can you go back and recode that? If you were the user, yes, but very rarely they do that. Sometimes a local administrator does do that, though, because they can log into them. If they do log in and put a full narrative in now, then it goes back into being data cleansed again. So either Heather or Susan does the data cleansing. They look to see if the text matches the coding. And then if it doesn't, they don't change the reporter coding. But what they do do is we've got a separate parallel system where they make suggestions for additions. And we can search that too. 
the, the back end of web is there's a lot to it isn't there a lot going on underneath that platform I'm very, very impressed with the amount of sophistication <laughs> behind this one. You've come on to something I wanted to ask about, and I'm asking for a younger me. I think when I was a younger consultant, and I still am, I was interested in incident reporting. And as I said, I still am. I was involved with setting it up in Fiji and Cambodia and various other places. But I, I always wondered, for people who want to do, say, a little audit or a little research, is it possible to approach ANSADAC and say, hey, I'm interested in looking at difficult airways in children, for example? Yeah. And then if they were interested, how would they go about that? So they'd uh, have to contact us through the parent organisation. And in fact, we have a group in Adelaide who's doing just that. Having seen the results of uh, Yasmin's presentation in the adults, uh, they've said, yeah, we'd like to do it in children. So we're actually doing that at the moment. I'm glad we're talking about this because I've heard that you're hoping or planning to retire from this at some stage. It's not because of any particular reason, because I really very much enjoy doing it, but, but we were hoping that we would still be able to continue to program whilst I was still able to. What do you envisage in the future? Would it need much more programming? I mean, I can't imagine anyone replacing you. <laughs> <laughs> It's not totally impossible. I'm just trying to think. I see that there's two things. They would have to be keen on it, which we have got other people who are keen on it. They'd also have to understand the technology. And most of the mm. people who are teaching themselves nowadays are actually very much into the web-based technology, you see. But yes. <clears throat> the way this platform works is it's got three kind of levels. It's got the web interface. Then it's got mm -hmm. a business layer that sorts out what comes from the web and then sends it through to the database, and then the database stores it, and then the reverse for getting it out. And that's a traditional yep. three-level approach, as it were. And that's now probably called a model view controller. So you've got the um, view, which is the same as the web page. You've got the model, which is a combination of the business layer and the um, database, and yep. the controller, which acts as an intermediary between the two. Yeah. Uh, so you send a request to the controller, the controller grabs the information and sends it back to the web page. It's almost identical with what we're doing, but they have a different technology to support that now. And we uh. do that, but the other one has more features, but it's not worth converting at this point, converting our whole system over to it. But somebody in the future yeah, might yeah. do that, but it's not a small job. You've got such a unique knowledge and skill set being able to handle both the clinical side of the database, but also handle the programming side of it. So your thoughts for the future is that whoever it is who's going to replace you would need to retain both those skills and knowledge. That's a really hard ask. Do you think it would get to a point where the database, the programming doesn't need to be updated anymore? I think we're close to that now. But then, of course, programs have changed so much in the last 30 years um, that I've seen that you can't imagine that uh, you wouldn't want to have a new version of it at some stage in the future. Someone's going to need to know how to do that transition, aren't they? Yeah. Well, the database is the easiest part of that because I've kept that up to date. So that's running on the latest version of Microsoft SQL Server. So the database wouldn't need to be changed, although they might decide to improve it in some way. They probably would, actually. I mean, I would if I was doing it. <laughs> I mean, what I mean is, if, some, if I got somebody else's database, I'd think of a way I could improve it. And when I've got time, I improve ours. And the thing that 
would be likely to change is the model and and the view and the controller part of it. Uh, so uh -huh. the web page itself and how that looks that would be good to improve because it is looking like a program from the early two thousand, which it is. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we've got a new digital designer at the ASA who's been reskinning our ASA website, and she's been doing a fantastic job. She makes it look seemingly very easy because she's so efficient. That could be a useful resource, actually, uh, for making the website look more modern. I said to her, I don't know if you've looked at the ASA website lately, but we have a, a join now button. People used to email me quite often saying, how do I join the ASA? Where's the link? And I said, could she just have the join now button and it stays on the screen at the same place while you scroll up and down. So it's always there on your screen. And she just did that in a day. What we do need probably is that the opening page resizes itself appropriately. We've got a separate one for reporting an incident on a, a mobile device, but we could make the original one resize itself properly. And you can use the original one on a mobile device, but on a phone, you've got to keep moving the screen from side to side. Uh, and you've got to enlarge it so you can read the writing. So my plan would be to initially have somebody else take over the more administrative stuff, like writing the articles and the day-to-day -day business of it. And I would stay involved in the programming for a time being till we were, it was static. That sounds like a good transition plan. It's not that I necessarily want to retire completely. It's just to make sure it uh, goes on into the future. Exactly. We need to future-proof it. The, for a period, actually, come think of it, if we run the system in parallel with new people taking over some of my roles... I suspect we'll need at least three people to replace you in terms of your roles. <laughs> and, and I'm still not convinced we'll find someone to be to take over from the programming side of things. So I'm, I'm reassured that you still want to be involved with that. Yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've got a little action list. Maybe we'll look into having some M&Ms as a trial and see how we go with that as a way of working through the ANAs. Yes, we could trial it with committee members and friends sort of thing. Other people from the ASA and... Oh, look, but it's been wonderful chatting with you this morning. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes in WebEvs, and it's very impressive the amount of work that you have put into it over the years, and it's a very impressive system. So thank you once again for giving up some time to chat with me. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks, Lucy. Well, thanks again to Martin, who really is a wealth of knowledge on all things to do with WebEvs. What incredible skills and knowledge he's brought into setting it up. I hope you enjoyed that behind the scenes peek into all it does and how it works. As we discussed, ASA members can register to use WebAirs and you can opt to report incidents via a public hospital department or as an individual. For example, if the incident occurred in a private practice setting or perhaps if you don't want it to be notified to your public hospital department. In terms of learning from others' incidents that have been reported to WebEs, there are a number of ways for that to happen. You can attend a session at our annual National Scientific Congress. The video recordings from last year's joint ASA National Scientific Congress and Queensland CME meeting are available for ASA members only on the ASA website by going to the Educate tab and looking for ASA Ed Learning Resources. Of course, I'll put a link to the page in the episode notes so that you don't have to go hunting around on the ASA website for them. Speaking of the videos from that Congress, 
We will be putting a small selection of them on our ASA YouTube channel, so keep an eye out for that. Because they're on YouTube, they will, of course, be publicly accessible. You can also find papers from WebAirs published in the scientific journal that we produce, Anesthesia and Intensive Care, as well as in our more relaxed coffee table style magazine called Australian Anesthetist. I also plan to share some of these articles with you via this podcast, so keep an ear out for those episodes, hopefully coming soon. Finally, Martin and I did discuss holding an MNM meeting to discuss some of the cases. We did do that last year as a small group pilot and we had really good feedback and are looking to do more. So if you have some experience with facilitating M&M discussions and are interested in being involved and helping your peers as well as yourself earn some CPD points, then please do get in contact with us. If you don't have any experience but you are keen to be involved and perhaps have had some experience facilitating other conversations in a respectful way that promotes learning, then also feel free to get in contact with us. In the meantime, I hope you're managing to stay clear of any anaesthesia incidents and COVID, and as always, staying safe out there. This episode of the Australian Anaesthesia Podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. More episodes can be found on the ASA website, theasa.org.au. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes, and of course, you're welcome to share them as widely as you wish. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was by Mark Suss and we hope you enjoyed listening.